we met on a blind date. Um, we were all to dance. Uh, it was the 4th of July, and my brother ended up dancing with her roommate, and he kind of liked her, so he, he invited her out on a date, and she said yes, and then when that time approached, she kind of got cold feet. And uh, so she asked my brother if he knew of anyone that wanted to go out with a roommate. So we went out on a date, and you know we got along pretty well, and so we started dating pretty regularly. And three months later, I asked her on to marry me, and ten months later, we were after that we were married. So uh, that's kind of how things started. You know, marriage was probably not something I was ready for. Uh, our first year of marriage was pretty rocky and tumultuous. Uh, you know, we came from different backgrounds, um, you know, and due to a pretty short uh, engagement period, Rhonda probably didn't realize that she had said yes to marrying an, an alcoholic who had a lot of anger management issues. You know, either one of those things aren't good, but together they're a recipe for disaster. Remember one time during our first year of marriage, you know, we actually separated for a week. You know, and at that point I thought our marriage was over and I thought, well, that didn't last long. Another time, you know, I was drunk and we got in a in-your-face argument. And I hit her. And my solution to that was, I was such a man about it that I knew I'd done this despicable thing. I pulled my gun out of the closet, loaded it, and I was going to end my life. And Rhonda crying and begging me to stop, grabbed it out of my hands and told me that, you know, it'd be okay if we could work it out. Any sane person would have realized at this point what, what, I, what this was doing to us, but I didn't. There were going to be many more years of finger-pointing, you know, mostly by me, um, blaming each other for our problems, and emptying our bank account to buy my beer. You know, and through all this, Rhonda continued to show me God's love, grace, and mercy that He shows for each one of us. And I gave her so many reasons for turning her back, to turn her back on our marriage, and she never did. I always believed that we could make it. I had faith in Steve. I 
I wasn't willing to give up on him or our marriage. And I knew God was going to walk us through it. Well, he did. Uh, God started to change my heart. I had the opportunity with a job I had to listen to Focus on the Family on WBGL uh, during my lunch hour. So one day I also heard on that program about about this Promise Keepers event that was going to happen in Indianapolis. My pastor, uh, another friend of mine, and I decided we'd go. Prayed about it, and, and God convicted my heart to not attend this sacred event uh, with the poison of alcohol in my system. So about three weeks before we left, I quit drinking. And that at that event, which was incredible, God changed my heart and opened my eyes to see what see what this addiction was doing to my family and to our marriage. And praise be to him for his faithfulness. I came back and I've never touched a drop of alcohol since it. hard time with the thought of divorce. I could see goodness in Steve, and I tried to remember that when Jesus was betrayed, people mocked him. He was beaten, spit at, and died and nailed on the cross. And I knew that in my heart, divorce was an option. Maybe homicide, but not divorce. <laughs> And I remembered the vows that I took when we got married, and I made the vows not only to Steve, but to God. And it was for better and for worse. And I know that no marriage is perfect. I know and I trusted that this was God's will he would get us through it. This year. By God's grace, we're going to celebrate our 35th wedding anniversary. And I'd say to those who ask if it's worth it, one of the biggest benefits have been to our children. And Ron and I firmly believe that every child you know they need they need to have a security of knowing that their mom and dad's gonna be there. That they don't have to worry about their mom and dad getting a divorce. And it's tough. Making a marriage work is tough. You ask if it's worth it, it is for us. You know, we're not famous people, we're not rich people. Um, you know, we're, 
not highly educated and we're not uh, people of prominence. You know, uh, by today's uh, today's world standards, you know, some people would say we just exist, and some people might call us slackers. Some even might even call me a failure. But you know, if if you define success by God's standards of what the Bible says for a husband and a wife and, a, and his idea of marriage then we're living the dream <laughs>
The Lord himself says, I gave faithless Israel her certificate of divorce and sent her away because of all her adulteries. God was put in a situation where he had to divorce his wife, Israel, because she had so violated their vows. So marriage and divorce is tender to the heart of God. And, and so my job as a pastor is to keep you from suffering for all the wrong reasons. There are right and good reasons to suffer. And I want to keep you from suffering for the wrong reasons. And when a spirit of reconciliation is not present, well, that leads us to our scripture today in Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn there. Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. You'll find that on page 715 of your church Bibles. You just follow along with me as I read Mark 10, verses 1 through 12. Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you? He replied. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. This is God's word. Now, as we consider Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12, I would like for us to consider three conversations in these verses. The first conversation has to do with a conversation that Jesus had with his religious enemies, the Pharisees, in front of the crowds. That's conversation number one. We're going to hear that in just a moment. And then then there's another conversation that takes place in these verses. It's a conversation that takes place between Jesus and his disciples, and that occurs away from the crowds in a house, in the house. Mark's gospel mentions several times when after Jesus meets with the crowds outdoors, then they huddle up together in a house where a more extensive conversation takes place about the issue. I want us to listen in on what that conversation is. And then the third conversation is a conversation that I want us to overhear Jesus saying to us here today in this house, all right? Three conversations, the Pharisees, the disciples, then in that house, 
and Christ's disciples here now in this house. That's where we're going. Mark 10 begins uh, with Christ is on his way to Jerusalem. He's going to the cross, and he's making his way through Judea. And he begins preaching and teaching and speaking. And as typical, the crowds begin to gather because the Son of God, Jesus is teaching. The crowds have been saying, who is this? Who speaks like this? And this is where, once again, Jesus meets up with the Pharisees. Look at verse 2. Verse 2 says that the Pharisees came in order to test him. You see that? That's very important as we consider these verses because the Pharisees really weren't interested at all in in hearing truth from Christ. That's not why they were there. They're not there because their heart is hungry to hear what God has to say. They've come for one purpose and one purpose only. They've come to test Jesus. Since Mark chapter 3, verse 6, the Pharisees have wanted to destroy Christ. And they have colluded with the Herodians, Herod's um, gang, And so they have an agenda already. They're trying to trap Christ. And they use the issue of divorce as their debate. So so when we look at these verses, remember who Jesus is talking to. Now you already know what Jesus has to say to the woman caught in the act of adultery. Read John chapter 8. And you already know what Jesus has to say to the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4 who had been married five times and was living with someone who wasn't her husband. So you, you already know this from those verses. But Jesus isn't talking to a woman who's been caught in the act of adultery or a five time married Samaritan woman who's living with someone out of wedlock. He's talking to his religious enemies who want him on the cross and they're trying to trap him. You see, Jesus had entered the jurisdiction of Judea, which was under the control of Herod. In Mark chapter 6, we read how Herod had raided his brother's marriage and he took his brother's wife a woman by the name of Herodias. It was sort of a, their version of a celebrity divorce slash remarriage. And John the Baptist called Herod out on it. And that's what led to John the Baptist's arrest and imprisonment and execution. John's execution was over the issue of Herod's invalid and immoral divorce and remarriage. And the Pharisees know this, and so they're hoping to trap Christ into saying something that will get him into trouble with Herod and get him arrested and get him executed as well. They want to destroy him. So they ask him a question in verse 2, which they already know the answer to. Verse 2, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, Mark's gospel is abbreviated. And so Matthew's version is going to contain a few extra words for any cause. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Matthew's version ends with for any cause. 
There's no difference between these two Gospels. It's just that Mark's Gospel is abbreviated and Matthew's is extended. In verse 3, Jesus shrewdly replies, What did Moses command you? And they replied to his question, Moses permitted a man to write up a certificate of divorce to send her away. Certificate of divorce. They're referring to a passage of scripture in the Hebrew Bible, Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. Verse 1, if a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, And he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house. The word divorce itself means to send away, to send away. And Deuteronomy 24.1 stated that if this happened, it had to be in writing. Now, that was unique among Israel in the ancient world because in the ancient world, in a patriarchal society, at any given point in time, the husband could send the wife away and then would keep the children. Israel was unique in this. If this unfortunate thing happened, It had to be in writing, and that was radical. In Bible times, divorce was an independent action taken by a husband who wanted to get rid of his wife. Uh, You might be surprised to learn that divorce in our culture is a more highly regulated event than even in ancient times. It wasn't done in a courtroom. It was just an independent action taken by a husband. And the purpose of the divorce certificate was to protect the victim. It was to help the woman remarry. So how, see, how would she support herself in a patriarchal culture? The certificate protected the woman from brutal abandonment. The certificate prevented the first husband from destroying her new marriage by attempting to reclaim her. The certificate was intended to keep social upheaval associated with divorce to a a minimum. God did not allow divorce so that we could look for reasons to divorce. He allowed it to limit the toxic effects of a hardened heart. And so therefore, divorce could only be initiated by the victim, not the perpetrator. And God allowed but never commanded, he allowed, he allowed divorce to limit the damages of a hardened heart. And the Pharisees had hard hearts. The, the Pharisees were like the person who went to a bank asking for a loan, and no sooner than they pocket the cash, they want to know how they can default. Now, we read this word in Deuteronomy 24.1 previously. Let's look at it again. It's the word indecent, indecent. In Christ's day, there were two interpretations for this word indecent. One interpretation was held by a more conservative school. It called the School of Shammai, and they had a very narrow definition of the word indecent. This school taught that divorce was for 
Extreme cases such as adultery, abandonment, or abuse. That defined indecent. So, for instance, when Joseph found out when, that Mary was pregnant in the, in the nativity story, see, he was going to divorce her quietly. See, Exodus 21, verses 10 through 11, states that if a husband marries another woman, he must not deprive the first one of her food, clothing, and marital rights. If he does not provide her with these three things, she is to go free without any payment of money. So adultery, abuse, abandonment were grounds in the Shemai school which interpreted the word indecent. And it was to prevent the exploitation and oppression of the weak and vulnerable. The other school was called the school of Hillel, the school of Hillel. And this school said that the word indecent could be anything that the husband said it was. If she was an indecent cook, yeah. If she was indecently dressed, if she had maybe conversation with other men in public, if she said something wrong to her in-laws, or if she just wasn't pretty anymore. He could label that as indecent, and as long as the letter of the law was observed, as long as the technicalities were attended to, as long as the husband prepared that document which stated, you are allowed to marry any man you wish, then he signs it, see, with witnesses. And that, that was... That was the guts of the divorce certificate, the phrase, you are allowed to marry any man you wish. There it was. Then the husband could send his wife away for anything that he determined to be indecent. So guess which school was prevalent in Jesus' day? You got it. The Hillel school. It's no surprise that the Hillel school was the majority perspective in Jesus' day in Judea. And it's certainly what the Pharisees held because they were on the same team as Herod. And they posed the question because they were calculating that Christ was more conservative and they wanted to get him in trouble in the same way that John the Baptist was arrested, imprisoned, and executed. They were out to destroy Christ. So please understand, church family, Mark chapter 10, 1 through 12, this entire discussion is not about an honest search for truth. The issues on the table is because the enemies of Christ want to destroy Christ. And my point is this. Sometimes people approach the subject of divorce with their own agenda in mind. On the surface, we might ask the question, well, what does God really feel about divorce? But deep down, when we dig deeper, there's the heart motive really is, well, how can I find a Bible verse to justify what it is I've already decided to do? 
Some people have already determined a course of action, and now they just want the scriptures to validate it. They're trying to find a verse to validate what it is they want to do. So whenever we ask about this issue of divorce, can we do a self-audit? We need to. We need to check our heart motives. We need to ask ourselves, now why is it that I really want to know about this? Am I searching for truth, or am I testing Jesus Am I passionately pursuing the heart of God, or do I just want to pursue the passions of my own hardened heart? Which is it? Which is it? And Jesus calls them on it. He says in verse 5, look, it's because of the hardness of your heart he wrote you this command. He's saying you and your, because he's telling the Pharisees, you have hard hearts. And the hardness of your heart is a hardness toward God cardiosclerosis of the spirit. That's why marriages fail. Hearts can become so hard through infidelity, abuse, neglect, abandonment, that the marriage dies. And when the marriage dies, a death certificate is issued, a certificate of divorce. But the certificate of divorce didn't cause the marriage to die. The breakup of a marriage is always due to sin, but the divorce itself is not sin. The sin is the breaking of the vows which led to the divorce. And so Jesus responds to the Pharisees by telling them about something else Moses wrote. Jesus says, look, Fellas, if you want to understand marriage and divorce, you've got to go back further than Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. You need to go back to Genesis. You need to go back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, because Moses also wrote that verse. Jesus knows his Moses. And Jesus cites the cornerstone verse on marriage when he says, but at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Church family, it is an irreducible biblical truth. At the beginning, God created marriage and that friends is the most contested issue in our culture today who gets to define marriage who gets to define marriage jesus insists god gets to define marriage god makes the call because god created marriage marriage was god's idea it was God's idea that marriage consists of two sexes, male and female. It was God's idea that marriage would occur when a man left his family of origin, join, hold fast, and be united to his wife. And it's God's idea that the two become one flesh. It's God's idea that marriage be a lifelong commitment. It's God's idea that their marriage be so unified that the only words that can describe it are the words one flesh, no longer two, but one. From God's point of view, marriage is not just a partnership or a working agreement. Marriage creates a new entity. 
In marriage, a husband and wife are no longer two separate individuals. They're one. And so I can never look at my life individually or independently again. I can never look at my life in a me-centered way. It, It can never be about my happiness where I try to win her to do things for me to make me happy for as long as she makes me happy. And when she no longer does this, then I can just abandon the relationship. No, no, no. You cannot look at marriage relationship as God has designed marriage this way. Once I commit myself to her, once I leave my family of origin, I must have an us-centered way of looking at life. My thoughts are that I am bound together with her. My money, my time, my resources, no. It's our money, our time, Our resources, I'm always thinking about we and us. All I do is a statement of my commitment to my marriage. Our marriage, 24 hours a day, seven days a week for life. In marriage, I freely choose to no longer be free. I'm not free to think in a way that's driven to my individual happiness. I'm not free to use my resources for me. I'm not free to use my time for me. I need to check in. Once that union takes place, we live as a unit, we decide as a unit, because we are no longer two. We are one. Now, if you are married, do you live that way? Is that the way you talk to one another, make decisions, make future plans? Are they an expression of your union? Are they an expression of we or me? And does your marriage reflect the reality that God has joined it? Jesus says, what therefore God has joined together, let man not separate. We tend to view life too often from a horizontal perspective. You know, what's comfortable for me? No. No, God, vertical. My marriage exists because of the sovereign plan of God. And he has joined me to my wife for something bigger and larger than my happiness or my comfort or my puny little kingdom of one. He's done so as a part of his grand redemptive plan in his kingdom that he is working throughout history. Jesus is ushering in a new world order, a new kingdom. And in his kingdom, marriage is a picture of his selfless, merciful love. And with that, the conversation ends. Jesus answers them in front of the crowd, and then he cuts off the conversation. Okay, we're done. And the Pharisees don't get it. They're not going to get it. They don't want to get it. Their hearts are hardened, and so they're they're content to use the law. It's so ironic. These Pharisees who 
who created such a fuss over outward ceremonial washings, which Jesus didn't really care about. Here, they take this more liberal view of Hillel while Christ is saying, no, you're no longer two, but one. But they don't get it. Their hearts are hard. And so they want to use the letter of the law to their selfish purposes, all while ignoring mercy and peace and love. Conversation's done. But then the scene shifts indoors. Verse 10, when they were in the house again. So they huddle up. The disciples going, wow, that was awesome. Well, you handled them, Jesus. It was brilliant. You really didn't answer their question, did you? And so they, you know, they asked Jesus about this. They wanted to know more. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. They wanted to know further about this matter. And Jesus says, point blank, all right, here's the deal. If you divorce in order to remarry, you commit adultery. Verses 11 and 12. That's Jesus is describing what happened in the situation of Herod and Herodias. Herod raided his brother's marriage. He got Herodias to abandon her marriage so that they could be married wrong. Foul. Sin. John the Baptist called him out on it, and it cost him his life. Jesus says, you may not leave your spouse to marry someone else. You may not, you may not abandon your spouse for a newer, younger prettier, better, wealthier model. No. And when Jesus, and Jesus says it that tersely, and I can just hear the disciples inside, when, when he says that, they go, oh, because that was such a radical word given the prevailing cultural perspective in the first century. Jesus may as well have said, if you sell your car to buy another car, you commit the sin of theft. But remember the context. The political leadership of Israel, the Pharisees, the religious leadership, the Roman government, all of the, the Roman, there was no certificate in Roman. It was just, go away, kids are mine. That's it. And the Pharisees, all they were, they were just interested in following the legal protocol. More interested in that than following the heart of God in marriage. And Christ declares that marriage is a part of the call to discipleship in the kingdom. And Jesus says, if you're going to be a part of my kingdom, remember what he said in the Sermon on the Mount, your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, or you will not enter the kingdom of God. God does not want you to live your life based on what he has conceded due to the hardness of human hearts. That was conversation number two. Let's talk about his conversation with us today. Because the text is done, isn't it? And I don't know about you, but my frustration comes, and maybe yours does, when we look at verses like Mark 10, 1 through 12, and we conclude that these verses say 
all there is to say in the Bible about marriage and divorce. And so, uh, as succinctly as I possibly can, on the backside of your outlines, I've just listed some principles of maybe some of your anticipated questions. And the first principle is the most important principle. If you forget anything else, don't forget this, please. Jesus says, if you choose marriage, if you choose to be married, do your utmost to keep your marital vows. If you choose marriage, the very best thing you can do To keep those marital vows, to protect and grow your marriage, the very best thing you can do is to live in submission to the will of your sovereign king, Jesus Christ. Please don't walk out of here without knowing that that that's what Christ wants from you if you're married. He's the king of your marriage. He's the king of your life. He is the sovereign king. A little later on, Brian is going to get up and talk to you about some of our um, insight courses that are being offered this semester. And I hope that you will take advantage of the United Marriage Course, a course that is designed to strengthen and encourage you to protect and grow your marriage. That's the first principle I want to make sure we walk away with. Next, and again, okay, let's come into the house and let's have a conversation, all right? Because we have questions about this, so let me do my best to give you some, some answers that I hope will clarify some of your questions. The Bible condemns divorce for invalid reasons. The Bible discourages, though does not prohibit divorce for valid reasons. And and even divorce and remarriage for valid reasons can carry with it lasting consequences as we deal with new family dynamics and, and, and or hurts that others may have toward the decision. Please understand that. Next, in the New Testament, Jesus and later on the Apostle Paul Both affirm valid provisions for divorce as cited in Deuteronomy 24 and Exodus 21. Adultery, abandonment, and abuse. And some of you are here today and you've been victims of this. And in our insight courses, I hope that you'll consider taking divorce care which is a course about the mercy and grace and recovery that can happen when you've been the victim, when you're struggling with the results of a failed marriage. Next, remarriage for invalid reasons is condemned, but not for valid reasons. If one should remarry for invalid reasons, he or she must not leave the new marriage. Rather, he should with the new spouse repent, confess the wrong to God, make peace with their former as far as it depends on you 
and seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Romans 12, 18 says, as, as far as it depends on you, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with all people. If you're struggling in your marriage, please don't try to determine valid or invalid reasons for divorce by yourself. Please don't. Please don't do that by yourself. You get, get wisdom from your elders, from your pastoral staff, from wise Christ-saturated counsel. And please understand, not every situation is itemized in the scriptures followed by a go-no-go no go response to the question, well, can I divorce See, see, this is where we need to do the self-audit. This is where we need to say, where is my heart and what is the heart of God? And then although this next principle is not even discussed in Mark chapter 10, 1 through 12, already this question has been posed to me. And the principle I want to share is this. Divorce itself does not permanently disqualify a believer from church leadership, be it minister, elder, deacon, etc. Though a divorced believer may not be able to serve in church leadership because the particular local con congregation isn't ready to follow. And so each case needs to be carefully reviewed by wise and mature leaders and time is needed to build credibility and no one except Christ should ever demand to be followed. I'll close with what I said at the beginning of this message. There are only sinners here at Windsor Road and that's why I need Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 5.17. They're on your outline there. I want us to say them together. 2 Corinthians 5.17. Do you see it there? Let's say it together. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. That's good news. What I want for us, I want, I want you to have I want you to have a marriage like Clifford and Eva. That's what I want. Clifford and Eva. Clifford and Eva, uh, they died last Sunday. They were married 65 years, and they did everything together. Uh, Clifford was 93, and Eva was 90. And they went dancing nearly every weekend when they were younger. And they even painted the house together. You gotta have a strong marriage to do that. <laughs> and they were always close companions. And with their health failing, um, you know, they were ready to die together. So they're, they're in the care center. Their beds were pushed together. Last Sunday, Clifford died. And the nurse asked Eva if she would like to hold her husband's hand one more time after he had died. And she said, I would. And within a few hours, she passed away too.
That's what I pray. That's what I pray. I pray, I pray for one flesh, whether it's, I pray for one flesh, whether your marriage lasts 65 minutes, 65 hours, 65 years. That's what I pray. Amen. Here's what we're going to do right now. Um, we're going to get ready to receive communion. Um, and our servers are going to be serving you the emblems. And most of us will be ready to share and receive the emblems. But you know what we're also going to do? I'm going to ask our elders and our staff to kind of fan out in the worship center. Uh, if you're uh, on elders or staff, please go ahead and do that now. And just make yourself around the perimeter. For some of you, communion needs to wait. Okay? And uh, we're a safe place. And maybe you're struggling with one or more of these principles. Maybe you're struggling with one of these verses. Maybe you've got a Clifford and Eva marriage going and you just want to pray for encouragement, okay? So in the next few minutes, while communion is being served, if you want to, you make your way up and let us pray over you. Let us pray over you and love you and shepherd you.